0: Last week we looked at the first recorded war uh, in the Bible and we have uh, four kings of the north make war with the five kings of the south and the four kings of the north ultimately uh, annihilate and destroy these five kings. And one of the kings is the king of Sodom and they go into Sodom and they take all the people captive and they take all their goods Uh, and one of the people there was Lot and all his goods are taken And so someone comes to Abram and says, hey, you know, Lot, your nephew's been taken, all this stuff. And so Abram arms 318 of his servants, and they go and do something very bold. They attack these four armies that just annihilated five other armies. And with 318 servants, the Lord gives Abram a miraculous victory. He gets all the people back, including Lot, uh, and all the possessions. And after that happens, the chapter ends with... Abram getting met by two different kings. Does anyone remember who those kings were? Melchizedek, Melchizedek, the king of Salem from the city of peace. And then there was the other king. Who was that? (laughs) The king of Sodom from the city of perversity. So we have Abram meeting Melchizedek, and we noticed something very interesting about Melchizedek. What did we know that Melchizedek most likely was? Yeah, and and, well, more specifically, he was an Old Testament uh, appearance of Jesus Christ. And so how did Abram respond to Melchizedek? What did he give him? A tithe of all that he has, so 10% of, of everything he has. And so after he has this you know, quite significant meeting with Melchizedek, then the, the king of uh, Sodom comes and offers Abram a reward. Hey, Abram, you just won this huge victory for us. You brought all the people and all the goods. Leave the people here with me in the city, and you can have the reward of all the spoils of what you got. And how does Abram respond to this very generous offer? He doesn't take it. Why? That's right. Abram says, I do not want you to be the one to claim that my riches are because of the king of Sodom. I want to make sure that only God is the one who can declare that. So he wanted God to get the glory for the rewards, not the king of Sodom. And so he rejects that. And so I bring this up because as we come into chapter 15 tonight, two main things of chapter 14 I want you to remember is... Abram did something very bold and he fights four kings who have four big armies who were quite furious when they came down. And he has victory over them. And he gets this big reward that he could have taken, but he chooses not to in order for God to get the reward and God to get the glory. And so as we come into um, chapter 15, keep that in mind because uh, we're going to see some very significant things. God has promised Abram well, let's remember, what has God promised? There's three main things that in chapter 12, God promised that he would do for Abram. Uh, what are those things? And remember. Okay, you make him a father of a, many na- or a great nation. So what is the first step in that? What does he and Sarai need to have? A son, in which they have not had yet. So that promise has not been fulfilled. What was another promise? Good. All the nations of the earth would be blessed through the descendants of Abram. Well, how are all the nations going to be blessed? Because of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is going to come through him, die on the cross for everyone's sin. And then there's one other. We call it the promised land. God promised them a specific land that he and his descendants would have. Now, God has not really provided any of these things. Abram's now in the promised land. But you know he's not confident. Is this really all mine? Uh, he hasn't had a son yet, and obviously the Messiah hasn't come. And so he's at this place where he just had this battle with the king. He just rejected this reward, but really the ultimate reward that he desires is a son. And so now we come to chapter 15, and we're going to see that Abram's going to be quite honest with God, uh, which I think is going to be a healthy thing that he does. He's going to share his feelings with the Lord, and the Lord's going to reiterate the promise that He's made with him. We're also going to see that God's going to do something to help Abram trust in the promises more than he does. So chapter 15, starting in verse 1, says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So this chapter starts with the words, after these things. It's speaking of what just transpired in chapter 14. So after this battle of you taking your servants to fight these four northern kingdoms, and after the fact that you gave up this reward to the king of Sodom, now the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. Now it's important to note that this is the fourth time that God has come to Abram. And we're going to see that through Abram's life as we continue in Genesis God is going to come and personally speak to Abram seven times. So this is the fourth time. There's going to be three more times. But each time that God comes, he's really trying to help Abram deepen his faith in the Lord, his trust in God and what God has promised of him and what God wants to do through him. And we see with each encounter with God, Abraham grows in his relationship with the Lord. And so God comes and he says something specific to Abram. What does he tell him? Do not be afraid. Now, why would God tell Abram not to be afraid? I mean, why do you tell anyone not to be afraid? Because they are afraid, right? What reason does Abram have to be afraid right now? What has just transpired recently that could bring fear to him? Yeah, He just went with 318 guys to battle four armies, which he was completely outmatched in. But the Lord, through his mercy and grace, let him have the victory. But I'm sure he's thinking, hey, remember the five kings who rebelled against those four kings? They came and destroyed them. I just went and fought them. When are they going to come to try to get retribution against me? So he has a real good reason to be afraid. And so God comes to him saying, I know you're fearful right now, Abram, but don't be afraid. Now, something that I think is very important here is God doesn't just say, don't be afraid, but he actually gives him a reason why. And that's so important because, you know, just the words don't be afraid often don't do us much good if we don't have reason why to go with it. I remember when I was young, my parents moved from the Northeast to California And we didn't have a home at this point in time. And we got to stay in this wealthy person's house. They had this really big house with many rooms. Uh, And, you know, growing up, I always roomed with my brother. I never had my own room. And so we come into this big house. And for the first time in my life, I have my own room at night. And I get in there, and I'm scared. You know, there's this room all by myself. I've never been all by myself at night. And so, you know, I get up, and I find my brother, who's four years older, in his room. Now, he doesn't have the same feeling as me. He's not afraid. He's rejoicing. Finally, I get my own room for the first time. And so when I walk in there to say, hey, I'm afraid. Can I sleep in here? Absolutely not. You're not spoiling this for me. You know What are you afraid of, you big sissy? Go back to your own room. For some reason, that didn't stop me from being afraid. Uh, so I go to my parents and I, you know, tell them the same thing. I'm scared, and you know, they tell me don't be afraid. But then they also give me reason. Hey, Matthew, we're only two doors away. Anything were to happen, we're right here. Remember, there's angels watching over you. You're not alone in the room. God's with you, and you know, they comforted me and, and enabled me because of the reasons why to say, okay, I won't be afraid. I can sleep in this room by myself. And so, you know, we need to understand that when God says, don't be afraid, he's not like my brother who just throws words at us. He's like my parents who say, you know, what, but I'm also going to give you a reason why I'm going to tell you why you have a reason not to be afraid. And and he gives this to Abram. Abram, I know you're afraid these armies are going to come back and they're going to just kill you and your family and your servants and take everything that you have. But God tells him, don't be afraid. And what reason does God give Abram why he shouldn't be afraid? I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. God tells Abram two very important things that kind of meet two needs that he has. The first need is this need because he's afraid. He's afraid of this army. And so God says, hey, don't be afraid. Why, Abram? Because I am your shield. Now, what do you think God means by that when he tells Abram, I'm your shield? What do you think he wants Abram to understand about him? Yeah, you're protecting him. I what's a shield does? A shield is a protection from the enemy in a battle. It protects from arrows, it protects from swords, it protects from all sorts of things. And so he's saying, hey, I am your protector, I'm your shield, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of you. If these four armies come, hey, remember, I already helped you get victory once, I'll take care of you again, I will be your shield. You know, God is not just a shield and protector for Abram. In Psalms 18, Verse 30, it says, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to those who all uh, to all who trust in him. Psalm 144, 2. God is my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge, who sedues my people under me. I love this. God's the shield. He's the protector. He's the strong tower for who? Everyone who puts their trust in. In him, You know, when we think of all the blessings that we have when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, we often go straight to forgiveness of sins, which we should. But there's so much more. And here's another one that you can add to the list. When you place your faith in Jesus, God now becomes your shield, your protector, your strong tower. This is the first lesson that I want us to take note of from what we see here in chapter 15. We don't need to fear because God is our shield and protector from our enemies note that God doesn't say Abram I'm going to give you a shield to protect yourself he says I am your shield and think about that God is saying I'm the shield I'm not giving you a shield I myself am your shield I am the one the God of heaven the all-powerful one the all-present one the all-eternal one am your shield and if I'm your shield Abram who's going to come against you If I'm your shield, what enemy can defeat you? If I'm the one protecting you, you can be confident that you will be taken care of in whatever battle you face. Now, if you were in the midst of a battle and you had a huge protection from a fortress behind you, you had your shield there and the army's coming in and you have your shield in front of you and the arrows are coming in, you're protecting yourself, but you go into this fortress and you close the gates... You're going to be fine. You're going to be okay. The the army now can't get to you. But you know what? If you put your shield down and the, the, the fortress stays behind you and the army comes and you just say, bring it on, and you die, well, the problem is you didn't use what was at your disposal. You didn't use your shield. You didn't retreat to your fortress. And in the same way, as Christians, we have God as our shield, as our fortress, as our strong tower. But so often we just try to fight on our own. Oh, God, I don't need you. I can handle it on my own. And we wonder why we're getting beat down, why we're losing the battle. It's because we're not using our great defender, Jesus Christ. And so what's a wonderful truth here that we have of God is the one who protects. God is the one who is there to shield us from the attacks that we have it, and one of the greatest attacks come from Satan, and he loves to bring fear. It's one of his, you know, ways in which he tries to get in at us, and we don't need to be afraid of him. Just like Abram didn't need to fear because we have God on our side, who will take care of us. Ray Pritchard says this: God's answer to fear is not an argument or a formula; it's a person. That's why he said to Abram, "Fear not; I am your shield." God himself is the final answer to every fear of the human heart. God says, I am. God's I am is perfectly adequate for man's I am not. When you're afraid, remember God is the answer. God is the solution. He's the one who will take care of you and protect you. So first, God tells Abram, hey, don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. If these armies of the north, they come back for retribution, I'm with you, I'll take care of you. But then God tells him something else that Abram needed to know. I am your exceedingly great reward. Now remember, in chapter 14, Abram did two things. He invades these guys and fights these four armies, but also he rejects the reward of the king of Sodom. And so I'm thinking he's probably at a point thinking, maybe that wasn't the best idea. You know, maybe I should have taken what the king of Sodom has, but God's reminding him, hey, Abram, I am your I am your exceedingly great reward. You don't need to worry about the fact that you gave up what the king of Sodom offered, because I can give you so much more. You don't need the rewards that the world has to offer. You need the rewards that God has to offer. You know, I think as Christians, we get so caught up in what the world can give and what the world can offer and and all the things that it has we miss a very important truth we miss something that the bible continues to reveal to us the fact that what god has to offer is so much more you know sometimes you think well, well only the, the wealthy people focus on riches actually no more of the reality is poor people who desire to have riches but don't have them focus on it more i grew up poor I remember my brother and I, you know, having conversations and we knew why we were poor. We were poor because my dad was a pastor and people in ministry don't make much money. And so we both vowed we're never going to go in the ministry. We're both going to get good paying jobs and we're going to finally have money. And I remember that pursuit, that desire. You know, as I later on gave my life to the Lord, and there was still this. You know, "Ah, I don't want to go into ministry. I don't want to be poor. I want to have stuff, and that really hindered what God was calling me to do. And God would open doors, and I'd close them. You know, I don't. No, 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 Lord, I know what that means. I know the. You know, the end result of that. That's poor, and I don't want that. And I finally had to come to a point where I said, Lord. I will give my life to you. I will serve you how you want. And if I don't have much monetary possession because of it, that's okay. But then God showed me something that, you know, was such a, a wonderful reality of from that time to now what he gives is so much better than what the world can offer. You know, I look at my brother who's still seeking to get all this world has to offer. That desire in his life has never changed. And he's been miserable in this pursuit of getting more and more. And he's, you know, he's still, I would look and say, well, you got a lot and he's empty because he's not focused on what's more important, what God can give. And what God gives is so much more than what this world could ever offer. Proverbs 23, 5 says, Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Worldly riches don't last, they corrode, they rust, and they can be taken. I mean, just look at the last two chapters. You have the kings of the north come down and take everything that the kings of the south have. And now they have all this wealth. And guess what? Right after that, Abram comes and takes everything from them. I mean, they lose these riches so quickly. The pursuits of what this life has ultimately is empty and will not last. And that's why Jesus, in comparing the treasures of heaven and uh, earthly treasures Earthly treasures, moth, rust, destroy, thieves, break in and steal. What he's saying is they're temporary. They'll be taken from you. Heavenly treasures are eternal. They don't get destroyed. They last forever. And that's why they're so much better. The second thing I want us to note from this chapter is the rewards that God has to offer are far greater than what this world has to offer. And the question that we really need to ask ourselves is, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that what God has to offer us, not just we, we kind of say, oh, we understand salvation and we already have that, but the promises of God, living for God, what God gives to us not in eternity to be, but also in this life, do we truly believe they are greater than what this world has to offer? And I think the answer to that question can be clearly seen in what you're pursuing and what you're living for. You can answer that question without words. If people would look at your life, if they look at your checkbook, if they look at how you spend your money, it would be obvious what you really care most about, what you're really living for, if you bought into the reality that what God gives is far superior than this world. There's a story of a little girl who fell in love with a string of plastic pearls as she was shopping in a, a toy store and she was so desperate for it and she saved her money for it and she finally got to buy this plastic pearl necklace. And, you know, she brought it everywhere. She went to Sunday school, to kindergarten. Uh, She wore it all the time. The only time she took it off is when she took a bath or went swimming. And she had a dad that loved her very much. And every night he would tuck her in and he'd read her a bedtime story. And one night he finished his story and he asked his daughter, do you love me? Oh, yes, daddy, I love you. What can I have? that pearl necklace. Oh, no, daddy. Oh, here, you know, take this stuffed animal here. Remember the one that you gave me that I love so much? It's is my favorite stuffed animal. You can have this. Oh, that's okay, dear. You have a good night's sleep. And as the dad continued to do this, he would say, do you love me? And then he'd go, well, then let me have your pearl necklace. And she would keep fighting and oh, no, no, and make excuses of why she wasn't willing to give it up. And then finally, before he even said it, she started to cry She took off her pearl necklace and she gave it to her dad. And he was all ready. And he pulls out the real thing. He had this whole time, every time he'd been asking her, he had a real set of pearls. But he was waiting for her to give up the plastic worthless set so he could give her the genuine treasure. And finally, when she was willing to give up the worthless treasure, she was given by her father the genuine treasure. And I bring that up because I think so often we're holding the worthless treasure of the world and we think it's so valuable and God's saying, oh, do you really love me? Give that up because I have something so much better. I have something more genuine. I have something that's gonna be more valuable. But until you give up what this world has in pursuing that, you're not gonna take what I have. That's why Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Until the treasure in our heart changes, until we stop desiring what the world has, we're not open to receiving what God has for us. And He has so much for us. And so often we're not getting it because we're so focused on getting what this world has instead. So God comes to Abram. Abram, I'm your shield. I'm also your exceedingly great reward. Two wonderful things that meet the need that Abram has at that moment how is he going to respond to this information? Well, verse 2 says this. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have, not, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one whom, I will, whom will come from your own body shall be your heir Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Notice here, Abram is pretty honest, straightforward with the Lord. God has just told him, hey, I'm your shield. I'm your exceedingly great reward. And Abram's response isn't maybe what you would typically think it would be. He doesn't hide his feelings. And I think that's a, a good reminder for us. God knows how you're feeling, so there's no point in hiding it. You know, it's not like, oh, I'm just going to pretend everything's good even though I'm really frustrated. I'm going to pretend everything's good even though I'm angry. Hey, God already knows you're frustrated. He already knows you're angry. Just be honest and real and let him speak to you. So Abram responds saying, you know, what are you going to give me? See, and I go childless. <laughs> my heir right now is Eliezer of Damascus, my servant. I don't have a son. Who cares, ultimately, Abram saying, if you protect me and give me all these rewards, because I don't have anybody to pass it on to. I don't have an heir. I haven't received the promise that you told me, the one that I've been waiting on, which is I'm going to have a son. Abram has some frustration right now. He's in a place of doubt. God, you have promised me all these descendants, but when is this promise going to actually come to pass? When are you going to fulfill this promise in my life. Now, it's important to note it's been 10 years since the first time God told Abram, you're going to have a son to now. 10 years is a long time. Abram's actually been pretty patient to wait this long. I struggle with waiting 10 minutes sometimes. So 10 years is a huge amount of time. So put yourself in his position before we look and say, come on, Abram, you know, why aren't you willing to wait? You know, how often are we willing to wait? You know, 10 years has gone by and there's frustration. And he's thinking, when is this finally going to happen? Come on, Lord, I'm just getting old and nothing's going on. You haven't fulfilled this promise. I think it's important to know there's a difference between a frustration and doubt that denies God's promise versus one that desires God's promise. Abram's frustration and doubt isn't denying that God's going to do it. He's just saying, I'm frustrated because I desire it so much and it's not here yet. I want it, Lord. I believe you're going to give it, but yet when's it going to happen? You know, I think this is one of our biggest struggles when it comes to the promises of God, which is waiting for them to be fulfilled especially in our culture. We live in such a fast-paced culture where we don't wait for anything. We're not very patient. I know I struggle with patience, and it's hard when God says, wait. You know, really, the, the two answers we want are yes or no. Those are it, Lord. I don't want the category of wait. You know, you just tell me no. I'd rather say no than wait. You know, We struggle with this waiting for what the Lord wants to do. So I can relate to Abram's frustration here. I've struggled with waiting on God's promises to be fulfilled. Hebrews 6, 11, and 12 gives us this challenge. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to fulfill, to full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Notice this. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Oh, we're going to imitate those who put faith in you, Lord, but it's that patience that we often struggle with, that they waited like Abram for God to give the promise. You know, something that we need to understand and believe. And I put them together because I think there are scriptures that we understand intellectually, but we don't actually believe. We don't really put them into practice. We know them. We could even maybe quote them, but it's not really true for us. And the thing that we need to understand, the Bible makes very clear, is that God is perfect and his timing is perfect. But that's something that we struggle with because so often it's, Lord, do it in my timing because surely my timing is the best my timing is better than yours and we need to come to the reality that no it's not god's timing is perfect and if he's making us wait for whatever reason then that's best you might not like it you might not want it but we need to come to that realization if god hasn't done it then it's not the right time and if it's not the right time then we should be okay with that because god's timing is perfect Which brings us to the third lesson I want us to take note of from this chapter. We need to patiently wait for God to fulfill his promises, trusting that his timing is always perfect. You know, this can be really hard for us. But we need to trust that if God is making us wait, it's for our best because he wants to fulfill his promise at just the right time. Warren Wiersbe says this. One of the basic lessons in the school of faith is God's will must be fulfilled in God's way and in God's time. God did not expect Abraham and Sarah to figure out how to have an heir. All he asked was that they be available so he could accomplish his purposes in and through them. What Abraham and Sarah did not realize was that God was waiting for them to be as good as dead so that God alone would receive the demonstration. The demonstrate, we receive, I think it's supposed to be, and demonstrate his power and receive the glory. So Abram's really honest. Hey, Lord, I'm struggling here. I'm frustrated here. I I, I don't want to wait. I've been waiting for 10 years. When are you going to fulfill this promise? And notice how God responds. This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Something I really love about how God responds to Abram's frustration, to Abram's doubt, is it's not this harsh rebuke of, hey, I told you this was going to happen. How dare you not believe me, Abram? Didn't I say it? Don't you trust my words? You know, God doesn't come to Abram that way. He's not rebuking. He's just reminding him, hey, remember the promise I gave you? It's going to come to pass. Eliezer, I know he's the only heir you got right now, but that's not going to be it. That's not the promise. That's not where your stuff's going. Trust me, I'm going to give you what I promised to give you. You're going to have a son. And notice he specifically says, from your own body. And this is going to be important to note because Abram's going to try to help God out a little well uh, from now. And so God takes Abram outside and he gives him a, a visual example. He says, look now towards heaven. Count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be? They're going to be like the stars. You know, go out on a night, you look at the stars, you see, you know, if you can count these, Abram, that's what your descendants are going to be. They're going to be so many that you won't be able to count them. And I love that God uses the stars because it's just a reminder, kind of like the rainbow. Every every night, Abram, when you look up, you can be reminded as you see the stars, wow, one day that's what my descendants are. Are going to be like God promised me this and he he showed this to me and it's a, a great reminder. And I think something else interesting is that one of the descendants that's going to be the most significant descendant of all Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 22 refers to himself as the bright and morning star. So the answer to Abram's fear was God's presence. I am your shield. I'm the present one with you to help you. And the answer to Abram's concern was God's promise. I will Fulfill my promise and give you a son. Now, as Abram's looking at these stars and contemplating the promise that God has just reiterated to him, we see one of the most significant and important portions of the Old Testament. Verse six says this, and Abram believed in the Lord and God accounted it to him for righteousness. This is the first time we've seen in Genesis, the first time of many things. This is the first time we see this word believed. And notice what it's connected to. It's believed in the Lord. Abram believed the promise of God that he would have a son. He believed in the promise of God that that son would make a great nation. He believed in the promise of God that through this son and the nation that would come, all the earth would be blessed through the Messiah who would ultimately come from Abram's Descendants, and because he believed in what God promised him, what does God do? What does God do? What are we told? Ah, he accounted that belief to Abram as righteousness. This is something very important to note that Abram's belief in the promise of God is what made him righteous. And notice when this took place. This took place before the sign of circumcision. This took place before the law. Before any work that Abram ever did, righteousness came not because of a work, but because of belief. It was never based on works in Abram's relationship with God. Righteousness never came from his works. It always was the foundation of belief. Belief in what God promised is what brought righteousness to Abram. This is referred to as the gospel in the Old Testament and it's quoted four times in the New Testament to help us understand that the gospel comes back to righteousness, comes back to belief, not works. Paul expounds on this in the book of Romans several times. I'm going to read a couple of them to you. We'll get to it on the Sunday service not too long from now. But it says this in Romans 4, 1 through 3. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This verse makes it very clear. It's not Abraham's works that justified him, it's not Abraham's works that made him righteous, it was his belief in God, and that is the exact same thing for you and me. We don't get a right standing before God because of good works that we do. Our right standing before God is completely based on our belief in Jesus Christ and the work he has done for us. Paul goes on to say in Romans 4, 19 through 24, and not being weak in faith, Abraham did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Paul once again reiterates this reality that Abram's Righteousness and justification does not come by works. It comes only because of his faith. But then he says it wasn't written just for him, it was written for our sakes. So that we could understand that our salvation is based on faith, not works. That it's belief in Jesus and what he's done that saves us, not the works that we do for him that save us. God accepts us, he forgives us, he makes us right in his eyes because of belief, not because of works. Which brings us to the fourth lesson that we learn from this chapter. We are saved not because of what we do, but because we believe in what Jesus has done for us. As Ephesians tells us, salvation is by grace, through faith, not of yourselves, is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Verse 7 says this. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So God tells Abram, hey, I brought you out of the land of Ur to the, the promised land, to the land that you're going to, I'm going to give you as an inheritance. And Abram, once again, is very honest and open and you know says, hey, how do I know I'm going to inherit this? How, how am I going to know that this is actually going to happen? I, I know you're telling me this is going to happen, but ultimately, God, I need some proof. I need you to give me something tangible here. You've told me I'm going to inherit it, but, but I need to know, how is that possible? I need some proof here. And realize, Abram had no deed to the land. He couldn't go around telling anybody in you know, some court of law that, hey, this land is mine. You know, I have, I have the deed here. It's been given to me. Get, get out of my land. This is all mine. He has nothing to prove that the land's his. And so he's wanting this from the Lord. Lord, how do I know that I'm actually going to inherit this land? You know, I think we often respond to the promises of God like this. Lord, I need some proof. It sounds great. I would love it if it happens. Oh, the promised land, that's good. But how can I really know that? I need something more. I need some proof. You know, I have done this many times in my life with the Lord. I'm sure you have done it as well. You know, one of those times is when God, you know, he specifically spoke to me, called me, Matthew, I want you to plant a church in Scotland. I'm 23 years old. I'm thinking, man, that's a huge undertaking, Lord. Surely that's not what you want right now. There's there's other things I got to do to be more prepared. No, I want you to take this step and I want you to go, Lord, I need some proof. If this is really what you're doing, you know, I need more. I need proof to, to confirm that this is what you're calling me to do, that if I go, you're going to take care of me. You're going to provide for me. You know, I need something tangible here. I need something that I can hold on to. And, you know, God didn't rebuke me and say, how dare you not trust me? He realized, okay, I see where you're at. I know that you need this. And so watch what I do. All of a sudden, I start getting emails from people telling me, I don't even know how to, to say this, but I feel like the Lord wants me to tell you to, that I will support you if you go to Scotland. I don't know if you're even interested in that. I didn't tell them. I didn't tell anyone that that's where I felt the Lord was calling me. And people are telling me, we're ready to support you, or we're ready to get behind you in this. I'm like, oh, wow, that's, that's odd. And then I go to get a visa. A visa takes at least six months for most people to get it for the UK. I got it in one day. I never had to leave. I was in Austria at the time. Normally people got to go, they got to raise a bunch of support, go talk to a bunch of churches, talk to a bunch of people. I, I went straight from Austria to Scotland because all my support was raised by the Lord. I didn't have to go talk about it. People were just coming and telling me they want to do this. Church has heard about it and they said, hey, we want to support you. And I was thinking, all right, Lord, I got it. That's enough proof. I'll take the step and I'll go. You know, we see this with Gideon, you know, with the fleeces. You know, this is just something that happens. Abram's doing this as well. And, you know, this is a reality. Sometimes we're at that place where just like, Lord, I wish I was more trusting. I wish my faith was greater. But here is who I really am at this present time. I need something more than just what you're telling me. I need something tangible. I need to to see something that I can hold on to. And God knows this. And I love the fact that he didn't rebuke me and he doesn't rebuke Abram. What do you mean you need proof? What's wrong with you? Why can't you just believe me? So says, all right, Abram, you need some proof. You need something more that you can hold on to. Let me give it to you. Let me help you because I want you to trust me. And if I need to give you a little more to get you to that place, I'm okay with that because that's the end goal. That's where I want you to be. And so, okay, this is what I want you to do, Abram, verse nine. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. I'm going to give you proof. I'm going to give you proof that you're going to inherit this land. Now, we might be thinking, what do five animals have anything to do with getting proof that you're going to inherit the land? Well, Abram knew what God was doing. We think, okay, I'm going to bring you five animals. There you go. Now what? Notice Abram starts doing what he knew this was all about. He cuts all these animals in half. Now, we don't think that because in our day today, When you make a covenant with someone and sign a contract with someone, you don't get a bunch of animals and cut them in half. But in Abram's time, that's what they did. Abram knew God was saying, Abram, you need proof? I'm going to sign a contract. I'm going to make a covenant with you so that you can be confident that I'm going to do this. And so what they would do is they would take these animals, they would cut them in two, they would separate the carcasses, there'd be blood all there. And both the people who are making this covenant, this contract with one another, would walk through the middle of these animals, repeating whatever it may be. I'm gonna buy this house from you for so much, and you know, whatever it may be. You know, you repeat the, the, the terms of the agreements, you walk through it, and the reason that they would do this is you know the severity of it. But also, you know what, if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain, may I be like this animal who's been cut in two. If I don't do what I'm supposed to do, if I you know, don't fulfill my end, this was a very serious thing. And so Abram knows what God's doing. So he gets these animals. Cuts the animals in two. He's ready for the covenant. He's ready for he and God to walk through and for God and him to talk about, you're going to inherit this land. This is going to be for you and for all your descendants. But notice what happens, something very significant. Verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So this deep sleep comes over Abram, and God comes and speaks to him, and First, God tells them what's going to happen. I'm giving you this land, and I want you to know what's going to happen to your descendants after you. And the first bit of news is not very good news. You know what? They're going to be taken captive. Now, we know from the book of Exodus what God is speaking of here. The Israelites are going to be in Egypt, and the Pharaoh's going to think, hey, you know what? They're getting too big. We need to make them slaves, or they're going to overrun us. And so they're slaves for 400 years in Egypt, but then God's going to deliver them and bring them back to the promised land. And so God's already warning Abram, hey, this is going to happen. But remember, it's going to turn out good. They're going to get back. They're going to be in this land. They are going to have this land. I'm going to make sure that they come here. But for you, Abram, you're not going to experience all that. You are, another promise, going to live a good old age and die in peace. God's given Abram a lot of promises. And here's another great one. I'm sure all of us would want to hear that. You know what? You're going to live to a nice good old age and you're going to die in peace well does god fulfill this promise genesis 25 verse 7 and 8 says this this is the sum of the years of abraham's life which he lived 175 years then abram breathed his last and died in a good old age an old man full of years and was gathered to his people god fulfills this promise abram you're going to live a long time yeah 175 years that's really long especially now The lifespan has drastically dropped after the flood. Abram is one of the oldest people to uh, live at this point in time. Uh, And so God enables him to live for 175 years. He, He dies in peace and God fulfills this promise just like he's going to fulfill all the other promises that he has given to Abram. Well, now we're going to see God finish the chapter. But notice how this covenant is ultimately done. Verse 17. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the Canaanite, the Chazites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephram, the Amorite, the Canaanites, the Gergeshites, and the Jebusites. For a typical covenant, where two parties are are making a covenant with each other, each party has something that they have to do, both parties together walk through these animals that are cut in half, both parties are repeating what their part of the covenant is. But there's also another type of covenant. It was referred to as a unilateral covenant or or a one-sided covenant. Because only one side was doing the work. Only one side was making the covenant. Only one side had the contract of what they were to fulfill. And so they themselves would walk down the middle of these animals alone. Because it was all based on them. And this is important to note because notice who walks through these animals. What are we told? What do we see? What's going through there? We have a smoking oven and a burning torch. You think either of those speak of Abram? No. If you look through after this point in time, we see several different instances of God being represented as a burning bush. Or a pillar of fire, or a cloud, uh, or the Shekinah glory that's over the temple in a cloud, or smoke on the Mount Sinai. You know, these are things that God uses to, you know, dis- display Himself. And so, God alone is the one walking through these animals. Abram is not doing this, and this is so important to note because so often we think of a covenant. Okay, if Abram fulfills his end of the bargain, then God will fulfill His end. But if Abram doesn't fulfill his end, sorry, Abram, the land's not yours. It's not for your inheritance. You're not going to get these things. But the thing to understand here is Abram has nothing to do with this. It's completely on the Lord. It's going to happen or it's not going to happen based solely on God and his faithfulness, which then we can be confident it for sure will happen because it's a unilateral covenant, a one-sided covenant. God is making this. And because of it, the covenant can't fail. It's going to continue. It's going to happen. Why? Because God can't fail, and God is the only one establishing it. And we see this very important reality. And then God says, "Hey Abram, I want you to note something. Look at what he gets. You're going to inherit the land. And we've heard the the Promised Land, and in our minds we think of Israel. But God gives the boundaries of the land that He says is going to be yours. And we have." From the river of Egypt, speaking of the Nile River, to the river Euphrates. And and I want you to note this map here because it's probably much more than you would normally think. Um, First, I think we have Warren Wiersbe quotes here. Let's put that up. At the beginning of Abram's pilgrimage, God said to him, I will show thee the land. Later, he said, I will give it unto thee. But now his word is to your descendants, I have given this land. God's covenant made it a settled matter. The land belongs to Abraham's descendants. This is a great reality of now he's saying, I have given it before I'm going to. But now that we've made this covenant, it's yours. It's set in stone. This is your land. But look at the map here and how much land that Abram has. So you see the, the red mark there on the Nile River to the southwest. And then the red mark to the north is the great river Euphrates. And really, the majority of the, the land between it is the land that God had given. You have all the different names of the different, you'll see them as they come in to conquer the land, the Amorites and the Canaanites and all these people who possess the land that God was giving to the Israelites. Now, I bring this up because when you think of the land, this is what we think of today. We think of Israel, that little spot in the middle, because that's all that they possess now. But that is not the land that God promised. He promised them far more than that. And here's the sad reality as you study through the Bible. They come out of Egypt. God says, here's the promised land. I want you to subdue it. All these people who are here, don't worry. Oh, they're giants in the land. Don't worry. I will kill them for you. I will take care of it for you. Your enemies will be destroyed. This land is yours. Go and subdue it. And they go into the land, and they only take a small portion of what God ultimately had for them. You know what? We're done fighting. We're content with this portion, even though we could have this portion. And I think this is a sad reality. They never, in the whole history of the kings of Israel, Solomon had the most land and he didn't have this much. They never possessed all the land that God had given them. They will one day when Jesus rules, but they don't now. And it's a sad reality that they could have possessed all of it, but they were content with only possessing some of it. And I share that because so often in the promises of God for us, we're like, Lord, I'm just content with the little. And God says, no, 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 I have so much more. I want to do so much more through you. I have so much more for you. Don't just be content and stop now. I know you have to fight. I know there can be difficulties that come with it, but I have so much more to give. And let the nation of Israel be a warning of, you know, they never possessed it. It was there for them, but they didn't take it. And so they never actually got to live what God had for them. Warren Wearsby says this. Solomon exercised dominion over a vast area, but Israel did not possess all that land. The kings merely acknowledged Solomon's sovereignty and paid tribute to him. When Jesus Christ reigns from the throne of David, the land of Israel will reach the full dimensions promised by God. God's covenant with Abram stands no matter what Israel believes. The covenant is unconditional. Its fulfillment does not depend on man's faith or faithfulness. In like manner, the new covenant established by Jesus Christ is dependable whether people accept it or not. Those who put their faith in Jesus Christ enter into that covenant and receive eternal salvation and eternal inheritance and eternal glory. When Abraham was concerned about himself, God assured him by saying, I am. When he was concerned about his heir, he heard God say, I will. His concern about the land was met by God's, I have given in Jesus Christ. God give those same assurances to his people today. Abraham believed God. Do you believe God? You know, this whole chapter is about God keeping promises and a man who struggled with believing that. And I think we're in that same place. We are like Abram. We struggle with believing that God is going to fulfill the promises that he says he will fulfill. And one of the big issues is because it takes time, but we need to trust God will do what he says he will do. He will keep his promises. And there's some wonderful ones that we see here. God promises he's a shield to those who trust him. So you don't need to fear because God is your shield and protector from your enemies. God promises that what he has to offer will last forever. It's so much better than what this world has that will fade away. So the rewards that God has to offer are far greater than what this world has to offer. God promises to fulfill His promise and his perfect timing. So we need to be patient and wait for God to fulfill his promise, trusting that his timing is perfect. And God promises that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So we're not saved because of what we do, but because we believe in what Jesus has done for us.